Good morning. Hey, welcome home to Cassidy. I am so glad that you are here, uh, that we are able to come together and we're able to celebrate God in the middle of uh, all the stuff that's going on in the world around us. If you're a visitor here first, you picked a really weird weekend to visit for the first time, but I'm excited that you are here. You are welcome here, and I am, I am excited because we are going to continue this sermon series called Long Story Short. But first, if you have chosen to worship online, special hi to you. We're excited that you are here with us. Uh, and if you're joining us on podcasts or, or on the website, we're excited that you are here. Uh, even if you're not normally a part of this community, I'm, I'm excited that you're joining us. Uh, we've been talking about this story, the long story short, uh, for a few weeks now, and we're going to continue for 13 weeks. We're going to look at the whole story of the Bible, from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And what we notice is one story, even though it's different types of writings and different uh, times that things are written, one story rises to the top, and that's the story of God's redeeming love. And so there's three things that my hope is that through this series we pick up. One is we want to learn more about God. We want to learn more about the author of the book and, and figure out more about what God wants. Uh, we want to learn more about God's story of redemption. That's the second thing we want to learn. And finally, we want to learn to be able to see ourselves better in God's story. That's the outline for what we're trying to get through is to find our place in God's story and see what God is offering to us. And we're going to start uh, by, uh, by just, I'm going to ask you a quick question. Have you ever uh, imagined something to occur and then when it occurred, the reality was completely different? Uh, where, where, you know, you thought the grass would certainly be greener on the other side, and when you got there, the grass was just like the grass you just left. Maybe you've experienced that. For me, I, I remember when I, was, when, I, when I went to enlist in the United States Navy, um, I, I was feeling pretty, pretty pumped up about myself. I'm a pretty bright kid. Uh, I did really well on the ASFAB, and so surely I'm going to get what I want. And what I wanted was anti-submarine warfare. Because I had just seen the movie Hunt for Red October, and I wanted to hang out with, with, uh, with Sean Connery, and I wanted to play a video game all day long, and I thought, this is going to be great. Well, every other boy my age had gone to the, the, enlist in the Navy and wanted to do the same exact thing. So I got to the, the, the very uh, fine, upstanding, no deceit at all uh, recruiter. No, I'm lying, so you'll get it here. And I said, hey, this is what I want to do. And my recruiter said, hey, that's not a problem right now. That billet is not available. Billet is really job. It's not available, but all you have to do is sign on the dotted line. Yeah. If you're laughing, you kind of get where this story's going. Sign on the dotted line, and we will take care of you. No problem. And I will let you wait, and as soon as one comes available, I will put you in there. Well, huh, he was lying. No, I, I don't hate the Navy, but that dude is special. So um, he, he, I, I went in unbilleted because I didn't have that, and I thought about that a lot while I was cleaning toilets during Desert Shield, Desert Storm in the Middle East, thinking, oh, this is a great career choice, Steve. Um, at least I was thinking about career choices at that point. Finally, my dad would have been like, yes, I'm so excited. Uh, but the, the whole idea was I had this, this picture in my head of what the Navy was going to be like, and it was radically different. And my guess is for most of us here today, 
last week could fit into that category of how you thought your week was going to go and how it ended up going. Uh, we've got uh, toilet paper shortages and people are, are behaving in the most bizarre ways. Uh, you know, people having trouble not shaking hands and, and not touching their face. And I've never seen so many Facebook videos about people not touching their face. Uh, or, hey, we're going to teach you how to wash your hands. I'm telling you, my mom taught me that and would have smacked me in the back of the head if I did it wrong. Uh, so we get that. And, and, but it's, it's this, this fear that's kind of been pervasive. And none of us at the beginning of last week, so last Sunday, when we left this building, I bet none of us were, were figuring that the week would turn out the way that it was, the, the way that it did. And so the reason that I start with that is because I, I believe with everything I have, that that is a picture of what we see for the stories that we're going to be talking about today. Uh, last week we left off and the, the Israelites had conquered the Holy Land. They have, have claimed the land for themselves and the promised land is now theirs and they are living in the land. And, and Joshua gets them all together and they, they, they re-ratify, they re-ratify, that's not a real word. They, they agreed again to the covenant uh, that, that God had put before them and, and said, yes, we're going to live this way. And so they, they, they were living in the land and just a short period of time later, so we have this, this period of time where judges and prophets come into the land to try and turn the hearts of the people back. But at that point in time, the land is governed as a theocracy. For those of you who aren't like, oh, I know what that means, I'll throw this out there. Theocracy just means that God rules. It's, it's ruled by God, not by people, but by God. Now, most of the time that comes through priests or prophets or something like that, where there is a human element. Uh, and, and if you look at, if you look at uh, the definition of theocracy uh, on Webster, it, it says that, uh, that priests and prophets rule in, God, in a God's name. And so that's what they have at this point. And the people think to themselves, you know, all we need is we need a king. If we just had a king, everything would be better. We would be able to follow the king because, you know, God gives us these, these rules and then we don't hear from God until a new priest or prophet or, or judge comes and tells us we're in the wrong way. Uh, never mind that they could have just done the right thing without needing to be told that they were wrong. However, that's the case is they, they've entered into this, this situation where they feel like, you know, we can't figure out what we need to do and we're not hearing enough from God. So if we just had a king, it would be so much better. And so they take this complaint to the, the prophet priest judge named Samuel. And Samuel says on God's behalf, you really don't want that. <laughs> That's a quote, direct quote. Uh, probably not. So Samuel says, no, this is not what God wants for you, and you're going to regret this. And the people say, no, no, we're, we, know, we know what we want. <laughs> it's always scary when you know more than God. So, no, no, we know, more than, more, we know what we want, and we want a king. And so God says to Samuel, you know what? I'll, I, I will relent. I will give them a king. They will regret it. And, and so he goes and, and anoints the first king of Israel, which is this guy named Saul. And all the people were super excited because Saul looks exactly like you would have your king look. He's a tall man who is well-built and handsome, and he's a great warrior. And they're excited. the people are excited about Saul, and they're like, this is our king, yes! And it doesn't take long for Saul to start believing 
the stories about himself. And to hearing, hey, yeah, I'm the king. Instead of being humble, now he's got a kingdom to care for. And his problem is that he elevates the kingdom of Israel over God's kingdom. And they come into this conflict. And, and, and here's, here's one of the things that happens. So he gets together, just as an example, he gets together and they're going to have a, a, a battle with the Philistines. And they, he gets all of his armies together and he tells, he tells the prophet, he says, hey, uh, we're going to go to war. And the prophet says, yes, no problem. I will meet you there in around seven days. I will do the burnt offerings and then you can go to battle. And so Saul's like, no problem. And he gets all his men together and they're sitting there waiting. And after a little bit of time, the men are like, you know, my, my flocks are not being cared for, or my fields are not being cared for, or, or my, my family's not well, or whatever it is that's going on. And so the men start taking off. And, and now, because it's not a, these, these aren't a hired army. These are people that live in the, in the land, and, and Saul has called them out. And so they go as an army. And so here's what happens in 1 Samuel 13, chapter 8 and 9. He waited seven days, he being Saul, waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings, and Saul offered up the burnt offerings. Now, when we read this story, it's just, it's just economical, right? He's, he, his people are taken off, he needs to go ahead and take care of it. But what he's doing there is something that we don't always catch because we are not familiar with the way that that would work is that the king is not the priest. And the priest is the one who offers the burnt offerings. So Saul is taking on his own shoulders for the behalf of the kingdom, the role of priest. And that's not his to take. Even though he's the king, he's not in charge of that side. And so Saul, Saul makes this mistake and offers the burnt offerings. And, and, it, and, and he justifies it. He's like, my, my guys were leaving. I needed to do something. But it continues this vein of him elevating the kingdom needs over what God is telling him he should do. And, and so God becomes frustrated with Saul, not surprised <laughs> because God knew what Saul was going to do uh, and, and raises up uh, and anoints somebody who looks totally different from Saul, a young man named David who is a shepherd in the field. And when, when, uh, when Samuel goes to, to, to Jesse's house and they're about to anoint the, the, the boy, they don't know which of Jesse's sons are going to be anointed, um, but they're running through this line of all of the sons and they go from oldest to youngest. But Jesse's so, or, uh, Jesse, David's so young that he doesn't even matter. He doesn't even rate coming inside because surely God doesn't want him because he's just a little shepherd boy out in the field. But when, when they get through all the sons, the prophet's like, nope, God didn't choose any of them. Do you have any other sons? And Jesse's like, well, there's, you know, there's David. Shh, keep your voice down because he's busy, but there's David. And so he's like, well, bring him in. And David was, in fact, the one that God anointed. Now, this has got to be confusing for Israel because now you have a king who is empowered by, by being the king, and you have the one that's appointed, that uh, anointed, that is going to be the next king. And you're just like, wait a minute, I didn't think that's how kingships work, but okay. Uh, and so there's got to be some confusion that's going on. But what really starts to happen is we have this, this power struggle that begins, and it begins because David 
is blessed by God. And David has a different perspective than what Saul does. Um, Y'all are familiar, Suzanne was talking about it this morning, uh, with the story of David and Goliath. But one of the things that I don't know that we always catch is, is the beginning of that story. So David shows up and he's like asking people, hey, why is this guy out here taunting the army of God? Nobody should be able to do that. We should just go out and kill, you guys should go kill him, right? That's, that's really like calling him out on it. And his brothers are like, oh, it's just, it's just a little David. Go back to the field and you just came here to start a trouble is, is really what they did. But Saul gets wind of it, and Saul calls him in and says, what, you know, what's going on, man? You're, you're, you're disturbing the peace. We're trying to focus on the insults that are being hurled upon us. So what, what is going on? And David says this in 1 Samuel. Uh, he says, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, sure, go and, and the Lord be with you. It's like requies cotton pie, you know, it's one of those. Uh, good luck, buddy. Uh, whatever it takes, you know, you're, you're the man. If you want to go down there and get yourself killed, uh, that's how I read it. I don't know that that's exactly what was going on, but um, that's kind of how I read it. But here's the deal. I love this part of it, and I don't know if you caught it. In, in verse 37, it says, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. And, and so what he's saying there is that he recognizes it's not him that's doing it. I don't have confidence in myself. I have confidence in God. I didn't slay the lion. I didn't slay the bear. God rescued me in those situations, and God will do the same thing there. And I think that we can start to see now. I see why God chose David. It's his passion and his faithfulness to who God is. That desire of his heart was something that God really loved. And David, however, wasn't as perfect as we know. He goes through life and then starts to stumble and has some, some of his own issues because his passion didn't extend just to God, but also to a woman bathing on a building next door to his, cas uh, his castle. And he was like, uh, that's, that's okay. Uh, and he called her over. And then in the middle of, of this situation, um, he recognizes, oh, that's, this is Uriah's wife, which is one of my men. And uh, now I've got to do something about that because if she becomes pregnant, everybody's going to know what I did. And so in order to cover up his sin, he tries fruit, fruitlessly to, to cover up his sin and eventually has the army back up when the fighting is the fiercest and Uriah becomes surrounded and is murdered. And David orchestrated it. And David gets called out on it and David, David is remorseful and resentful, but there is nothing he can do to overcome it. And, and this, is, this is a difficult time for David. And, and this is the time when God says, you know what? Your hands are too covered in blood. You can't build my temple. There's just no way. So I'm going to let your son build my temple for me. So now we've had two kings, and it's really two generations of kings because Saul was the oldest king, uh, was, and his son was about the same age as, age as David. And David inherits that throne, not because of, of, of birth, but because God had set that out beforehand. But what's interesting is we have this, 
divide that happens between David and Saul. So Saul becomes jealous of David at the, at the very beginning, even before he has, he has gone his own way and become actually been enthroned. Uh, and, and I'm sure David was like, man, this whole king business sounded a whole lot better when I was being anointed than me having to live in caves and flee for my life because Saul wants to kill me. So I'm sure he had a little bit of that as well. But here's the, so the overarching the theme then is that this the one king was focused on himself and 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 the kingdom of Israel not God's kingdom and the second king while focused on God's kingdom is also not doing all the things that he needs to he, he's not being obedient to the law the way that he needs to and and so his son is is enthroned after him. His son's name is Solomon. And maybe this guy's going to have it right, right? Uh, because God says, hey, I'm going to give you one thing. What can I give you? And, and Solomon chooses wisely and says, hey, I would love wisdom. <laughs> he was wise beforehand. Uh, you didn't catch it. It's good. Uh, so <laughs> he chooses wisdom and he writes, you know, in the Bible, he writes Proverbs and he writes Lamentations and he writes all these books of wisdom uh, but one of the things about him is, although he is wise, he doesn't seem to have a whole lot of common sense. Maybe you've met some people like this, that you seem wise beyond your years, or you're intelligent beyond all belief, but your common sense is down here. Uh, and here's what happened with, with Solomon. Solomon began to believe for himself the stories about him. Oh, I'm so wise. I can do whatever I want, and it's not going to matter. Because in the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, in the, in the law of Moses, one of the lines says this, uh, and he's talking about the people of the land. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. And yet Solomon does the exact opposite of this because he feels like well i've got to secure the borders of israel so what i will do is i will intermarry with foreign kings and dignitaries to secure those borders and this is going to be a really weird uh really weird set of scripture to stand for but i'm going to encourage us if you have your bibles turn to first kings 11 and we're going to read through verses 1 through 6 if you're able please rise and if if you're if you don't have your bibles with you they'll be on the screens it says this king solomon however loved many foreign women besides pharaoh's daughter moabites ammonites edomites sidonians and hittites they were from nations about which the lord had told the israelites you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods nevertheless solomon held fast to them in love he had 700 wives of royal birth, 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew fully, uh, as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He allowed, Ash he followed Ashtaroth the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites, so Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. Friends, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thank Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated. Uh, here's the deal. God said in Deuteronomy, don't do this, and, and Saul, Solomon's like, you know what? 
It'll secure the borders. It will do exactly what we need it to do. And so he was failing the same way that Saul had failed before him. He was putting the kingdom needs before God's kingdom. And I think far too frequently we can find ourselves in that place. And it it frustrated God so badly that God said, you know, I'm going to take the land of Israel from you, from your house. You're not going to have the, the entirety of the land of Israel. But for the sake of your father, David, I will not do that now. I will do that to your son. And for me, I'm like, oh man, just do it to me and get it over with. Right? Rip the band-aid off, but that's not what happened. And so his son, Rehoboam, gets the throne, and this is the fourth king since the beginning of putting kings in place. And for years before that, through the theocracy that God had, there is one nation of Israel that is a bunch of different tribes, but there is one single nation. And now in the fourth king, Rehoboam, he makes some bad decisions right off the bat, and they split the kingdom of Israel in two. Four generations of kings. And God is back there going, I told you you didn't want a king. And the people are like, no, no, we really wanted a king. We just didn't want it to be like this. And so we can, we can ask ourselves when we're, when we're looking at this story, we can say, well, yeah, that's all fine and, and dandy for them. What does that mean for us now? How can this be applicable to us? Because that's four kings that lived a long time ago, and how can it tie in to our lives? And so I wanted to point out a couple things. One, first, God is a better king than any king that we could put on the throne, especially in the throne of our hearts. And so what I mean by that is, if you spend most of your time in prayer telling God what God should be doing, maybe it's time to start listening. Maybe it's time to say, God, tell me what I should do, how I should live, how I should be, what I can do to be more like you. And the second is similar, and and this is really good news for me, because I find myself doing this all the time, is that is God did not abandon the people, even though the people abandoned God. They turned their back on God, said, no, we have to have a real king. You're not good enough, God. You're, you alone aren't good enough. We need a real king and turn their back on him. And God said, I, I will send you a king. I will step back, but I'm going to continue to try and make a way to keep this relationship going, to keep my story of redemption coming through and being visible through this. God didn't give up on them, and that's good news because God is not giving up on any of us. And, and so for me, when I find myself off in the wilderness wondering why God has left me, and God then re- helps me to realize, no, I didn't leave, he didn't leave me. I left him, and I'm out here on my own. He helps me to get back. He's right there with me, even though I have chosen to do things my own way and gone my own direction. God is right there with me. That's what the kingdom of God is all about. And here's the reality of this, friends, is that God's kingdom is not some distant kingdom that that he ended with. God's kingdom is available here and now because he sent us his son, Jesus, to initiate the true kingdom of God where we can experience God in a totally different way. So I want you to hear this. If you haven't heard anything this morning, hear this. You see, God's kingdom didn't come to an end when Israel split. 
It didn't end when Israel fell to foreign invaders and was hauled off into exile. It didn't end when Rome conquered Jerusalem, and it doesn't end when Jesus is crucified. As a matter of fact, the resurrection proves the opposite that God is working and the kingdom is coming and the kingdom is powerful. Uh, God's kingdom is eternal, not fleeting. God's kingdom is not in peril. Jesus isn't sitting trembling on the throne. He's sitting at the right hand of God the Father, knowing the plan and purpose of redemption that he has started and is carrying through to completion. God's kingdom is available right here and right now. And this is good news, friends, because God invites us into that. We can rely on that. We can have faith in that. We can celebrate that, even in the midst of a world that is not going the way that we anticipated it to. Let's pray. Holy One, we give you thanks for the gift of Jesus Christ, for not giving up on us, even when we turn our backs on you. Thank you for your grace and the way that you call us back into relationship, the way that you lead us out of the brokenness and back into the straight paths. Help us to find time to listen. Help us to hear your words. Help us to to experience your presence, maybe in a new and a profound way that we just know you're with us, even in the midst of brokenness and in the midst of all the bad things that can be going on, in the midst of of fear and concern, uh, of, of things that are outside of our control. God, help us to recognize you being with us. And then help us to carry that hope into the world. Help us to, to be bearers of your light, of peace and grace and love, so that we can share that with others, so that we can, um, so that we can be more like Jesus. Help us to do that in Jesus' holy name. We ask this, and all of us agreed and said, Amen.